Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we are, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> we're done with the book of Revelation. Yeah, chapter 1, we're going to start all over again. No, we're actually starting First Peter tonight. And so um, some of you are jumping in, and I'm, I'm glad you're here tonight because we're starting a brand new book. And so before we even start, um, I want to ask you a trivia question. And you may not know the answer to this, but does anybody know who Annie Moore is? Annie Moore. Anybody ever heard of Annie Moore? You've probably never heard of her. I'd be surprised if you did. Um, she was a 15-year-old Irish girl who, in 1892, was the first person to enter the harbors of New York City's Ellis Island and to register at the Statue of Liberty. So she was the first one, Annie Moore, 15-year-old Irish girl. And so when you think about Ellis Island, what do you think about back in the day all these people coming to America. Who was coming to America, and even today, back during those days? We okay? All, type, all types of immigrants, people from other countries today. I don't want to get political, but we have immigrants coming into our country. Um, the book of First Peter is all about people coming and living in another country where they don't belong. So let me just ask you a question. What country is our true country as believers? Heaven. Heaven. Okay, so we are actually on earth as immigrants. We're on earth as sojourners. We, this is not our true home. We're just kind of passing through. And so this whole study on First Peter, I'm titling Strangers in a Strange Land because this is really not our home. We are strangers here on this earth. And so... Peter addresses a lot of that type of issue. So what I want to do tonight is just to read the first two verses, which is going to spend a lot of time on the introduction tonight. We're going to go through this really fast tonight. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I'm going to ask you a very obvious question to start this off. And you know the answer because it's the name of the book. But who's the author of 1 Peter? Peter, okay. Now, who was Peter? Peter was the spokesman for the Twelve. He was the one that was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was loud. He was brash. Uh, what was the big claim to fame that Peter had towards the end of Jesus' ministry? When the cock crowed three times, he denied Jesus. Now, was that the end of the story for Peter, his, his denial? No, he was restored by Jesus. And so when you start the book of Acts, who is the main character in the book of Acts? Peter. Who preaches the first Christian sermon? 
Peter. He stands up at Pentecost. He preaches a message. How many people get saved that day? 3,000 people get saved. Okay, so now Peter, who is older and seasoned and has learned a lot of life lessons, is writing back to these churches um, in Asia Minor. So Peter's lived a long, fruitful, challenging, exciting life, and now he's an older man, changed man, writing back with some wisdom to these churches. So the other question is, okay, if Peter's writing it, where is Peter when he's writing this letter? Like, where is he? Where is he actually when he's writing this letter? Because sometimes when Paul wrote his letters, he was writing them from prison. Uh, we really don't know for sure where Peter was writing this from. But church history and other writings, especially from the letters of Paul, give us a clue. So here's the best guess that most scholars have of where Peter was. He was probably in Rome, in prison, and he was moved by compassion to write a letter to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. Now, trivia question. Where is Asia Minor? What did you say next to Asia, Asia Major? <laughs> it's below Asia Major. Asia Minor's modern-day Turkey. Now, let's go back to Revelation for a moment. The seven churches that John writes to are also in Asia Minor. So this is the same geographic area that John was writing to. It's the same area where... Um, Ephesus in places like that is. So this is a group of Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This letter was probably written in A.D. 63 or 64 because the traditional date for Peter's death is A.D. 64. He was crucified upside down by Emperor Nero. Okay? So if you put Peter as maybe a little bit older than Jesus or around the same age as Jesus, he's probably in his late 60s at this time. So he's, he's almost, you know, at the, at the twilight of his life, okay? So Peter is writing this. He's in prison. He's moved by compassion to write to these churches, probably churches that he's never been to, as most scholars believe. And so the question is, okay, who's he writing to? Who's the audience <laughs> Who is the audience of 1 Peter? Well, in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. That makes a lot of sense, right? You guys know who the elect exiles of the dispersion are, don't you? <laughs> Come on now. now. Here's the interesting thing about this. We don't have any record that Peter ever visited this area or knew these Christians specifically. But where he's writing at this time, now this is before, like Revelation was written in the 90s. This is written in the 60s, so there's a 30-year gap as far as the expansion of things. But where Peter's writing to, it was considered the outpost of the Roman Empire. It wasn't particularly important places. Anybody know where Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are? Those names ring a bell to you? If I were to say Corinth or Athens or Ephesus or, you know, you'd, Galatia, you know that because there's a book. But these weren't big cities, okay? So like in modern day times, Peter's not writing a letter to New York. He's not writing a letter to L.A. or Boston or Philadelphia or Houston or Phoenix or Denver. It would be like he's writing a letter to Sterling, 
somewhere on the outpost, which gives us hope because Peter's writing to a group of people that weren't really like the movers and shakers in culture at that time. But here's the issue. Peter's audience is primarily Gentile. Now, I'm going to be a little bit <laughs> a little bit funny here for a minute. Okay. Everybody knows what a Gentile is, right? It's a non-Jew. Okay. So when you're teaching a class at college and somebody does not use spell check and they use the word Gentile, <laughs> please use spell check <laughs> or it spells something different. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> a Gentile. So Peter is Jewish, but he's writing to Gentiles, which is very interesting because if you remember, um, Paul's missionary journeys and Paul's missionary method was to go primarily to the Gentiles. You often don't think of Peter going specifically to Gentiles. His was more the early church. Now, we had Cornelius, the first um, basically the first Gentile convert. Do you guys remember the story of Cornelius back in Acts chapter, I think it's Acts chapter 10 and 11? So Peter's having this dream and the sheet comes down with all these unclean animals and God says, rise and kill. And Peter's like, I've never eaten food that's unclean before because I'm a good Jew. And God says, no, um, I'm, I'm doing this as an object lesson. There's a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He needs to hear the gospel. And so Peter goes to Cornelius. Cornelius hears the gospel and then his whole family gets saved. And then all of a sudden Gentiles are getting saved in um, the missionary movements of the church. And there's the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, where the church has to decide whether they're going to make the Gentiles get circumcised as a way to show their salvation. Um, but one of the things that was happening was Gentiles were getting saved. And so one of the things that you see in the book of Acts, um, whoops, is Acts chapter 11. Okay, come on now. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So these are Gentiles, which is very, very important. They're non-Jewish people, and they're in Asia Minor. But what does he call these Gentiles? Elect exiles of the dispersion. Does anybody have anything different in their translations besides elect exiles? Do you have maybe the chosen of the dispersion? Pilgrims, does he use the word dispersion? Does everybody have the diaspora or the dispersion in there? What does that mean? What's a dispersion? Okay. And why are they called elect exiles? Let's just talk about some words here. Okay. Does it, all right, so what's the different words you guys have? So like the ESV uses the word exile. What are some different translations? What are some different words you guys have? Yours uses what? Pilgrim? Okay, pilgrim. That's kind of a word we don't use much because what do you guys think of when you think of pilgrims? Yeah, Thanksgiving, okay. Does anybody have a different word besides exiles? Maybe aliens, okay. Sojourners. Okay, so these people are. Am I supposed to dance or something? <laughs> okay, Gentile. All right, so they're Gentiles, and they are. Um, okay, that's all right. So 
they're Gentiles and they're aliens. They're, when you think of the word alien, when you think of the word sojourner, when you think of the word exile, what comes to your mind? Somebody that's just passing through. So when somebody comes to this country and they come from another country, what do we call them? An immigrant, an undocumented worker, an alien, whatever you want to call it. Is this their home? Okay. So Peter's saying, hey, Gentiles, this world's not your home. You're exiles. And you're part of what's called the dispersion. Okay. So what does it mean to disperse? Please disperse. There's nothing to see here. Please disperse. To scattered. Okay. So they're scattered. They're Gentiles that are scattered over this geographic area in Asia Minor, and they're also called the chosen ones or the elect ones, which would be very interesting because in the Old Testament, who, was the, who were the elect ones in the Old Testament? The Jews. the Jews, the Israel. So Israel was the elect. Okay, So Peter is purposely using Old Testament imagery of what the people of Israel were called, the elect, the chosen, to talk about us as Gentiles and we're exiles, we're not really part of this world, and they're in the dispersion, they've been scattered all over the known world. Okay? So, a temporary resident would be the best translation probably. We are temporary residents on planet Earth. It's not our home. What does Paul say in Philippians 3.20? Our citizenship is where? In heaven... And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, here's Peter's big issue. Here's the looming question. Here's Peter's thesis. I'm just going to introduce it to you tonight. Here's what the whole book's about. The questions that Peter's going to address. And he introduces us by calling us temporary residents, temporary aliens, sojourners, exiles. Since we're not of this world... And we are strangers in a strange land. How do we live as such in this present world? How are our lives as Christians marked by a different lifestyle than the world? Okay, so how's our worldview different? How are our values different? How's our belief system different? How's our behavior different? How is it shaped by the gospel as opposed to this world system? So let's be very honest. And we talked about this in Revelation. It's going to keep coming up again. I'm going to keep reminding you this as your pastor over and over again. It's going to get more and more difficult to live in this world, in this culture. Okay. So the question becomes, you can't escape this culture, can you, unless you want to go live in a convent or go live in a, as a monk or just go live somewhere and bubble yourself off. You have to live in this culture. So the question becomes, are you going to let the culture swallow you up or are you going to be different than the culture? Because this is not our true home. We're just passing through. And as we're passing through planet Earth on our way to heaven, how are we going to live as true citizens of the kingdom? Okay? And Jesus told us this. What did Jesus say in John 17, 15 through 18? He's praying to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. Jesus says, I don't want you out of the world. You need to be in the world. You need to be salt. You need to be light. You need to be out there. 
but you need to be sanctified by the truth, so you need to have a lifestyle that is different. So, Peter is going to go to great lengths throughout the rest of the book, the rest of the letter, to show us how to do that. So I want us to do a really quick preview of the book tonight to just show you the topics we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Okay, So let's just look at verse 17 for a moment. Chapter 1, verse 17. This is a very major theme in the book of, of 1 Peter. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's a weird statement. Conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile. What's he saying? As you live life in this world as an exile, as a resident alien, as a temporary citizen, conduct yourself with holiness, with fear, a distinctly different lifestyle. Okay? So in chapter 2, he's going to show us how we're a spiritual house, a chosen people. We're called to be a holy priesthood, a people that are distinctly different. And so he's going to address some very practical issues of what it means to live holy, what it means to live distinct, what it means to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time on this earth. So he's going to address some very practical issues. How do you relate to the government? That's going to get more and more important, isn't it? Especially as we move forward into whoever may be our next president or our leaders. Okay? That's a big practical question. Okay, how do you relate as employees to your bosses in the workplace? Is that a practical question? Yeah. How do you relate as husbands and wives? Obey. What? Obey. Obey. Okay. How do you deal with suffering? How do you share your faith? So real practical issues, guys. How do you deal with government? How do you deal with the workplace? How, marriage relationships? Suffering? persecution? How do you share your faith? How do you serve one another using your spiritual gifts in the life of the church? What's the role of pastors and elders in the church? How do we exercise godly leadership among elders? How do you respond to spiritual warfare and attacks of the devil? How do you stand firm in the gospel in a world that's unashamedly against Jesus Christ and his truth? That's what this book is all about. So how do we do that? Okay, so Peter could jump right into the practical and start telling us how to do that. But like Paul and like almost all of the New Testament writers in the epistles, Peter starts with what we call, I'm going to put two words up here. They're not in your notes, but I'm going to put these up here. And you're, I'm going to teach you something tonight. It's very important about how to read the Bible. Okay, so when you think about... Most New Testament books, so this is the first half of the book, and this is true of almost every New Testament letter, okay, not Revelation and not the Gospels, but the letters, okay, the epistles. First half of the letter, second, whoops, let's, first, second half. Paul's a little bit more structured than Peter, but Peter does it as well. 
the first half or the first portion, the things that, new, that come first in these letters is what we call the gospel indicatives. Now, you may be like, what in the world is a gospel indicative? Okay. The reason we call this an indicative is because in the Greek text, in the Greek the Bible's written in, the, 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 um, the mood, the, the indicative is a statement of fact. It's a statement of what God has done. It's a state, statement of who you are. In other words, a gospel indicative tells you who you are in Christ and what God has done for you. It doesn't tell you to do anything. It tells you everything that's been done for you and who you are and what God has done for you. So it starts with God. It starts with who God is, what God's done for you, who you are in Christ, what your identity is. So this, is, this goes straight to identity, okay? This goes straight to who you are, your identity in Christ, then, usually, like somewhere halfway in the middle of the book, there's a therefore. Okay, therefore, in light of who you are, in light of what God has done, in light of who Jesus is for you and who you are, then there are moral imperatives. Now, what's an imperative? It's a command, something we ought to do, something we should do. So the shoulds and the oughts, the commands, what we must do. So think about two big words here. A gospel indicative means it's done, it's completed, it's who you are in Christ. A moral imperative is what you must do. Now, no New Testament writer ever starts with the moral imperatives. They don't ever want to start with telling you what you should do without rooting it back in who you are. So I'm going to give you guys the thesis for the book that's, that I'm writing that's coming out very quickly, and it's this. Being comes before doing. Before you start doing things for Jesus, which you're supposed to do, it's very important to understand who you are in Jesus. And that's what Peter does here. Before he starts getting down the practical saying, this is what you got to do, this is what you got to do, this is what you got to do, he roots it in the gospel indicative of who God is and who you are. Now, let's just stop real quick. What would happen if these writers of these epistles started with the moral imperatives? They just started straight out. Husbands, love your wives. Obey the government authorities. Witness to your neighbor. Use your spiritual gifts. What would you think? Glenn. Okay, we got to do before we come. And what would you, what, there's two ways you would respond, okay, depending on your personality and the way you're, you're wired, okay? Some of you would start out with, okay, give me the list of what I got to do. And I can do it. I just need my list. I got to do it. And you can be very legalistic and very prideful and say, just tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. Because I can do it. Some of you, when you get the list of what you're supposed to do, some of you are like, this is overwhelming. I can't even begin to think about how to do this. I already feel defeated. I already feel deflated. I already feel despairing. So if we start with do, you're either going to be prideful or you're going to be defeated. 
We start with done. What, what has God done for you and who, you are, who are you in the triune God? That serves as your motivation for the things you should start doing. Oftentimes, churches get these backwards and it creates a lot of problems. If all you tell people is you got to do, got to do, got to do, be better, do better, witness better, try harder, be better, be better, be better, what are you creating in your church culture? A bunch of legalists and a bunch of defeated people. The gospel always starts with who is God and who are you in God before it tells you what you're supposed to start doing. Okay? I challenge you to go read every epistle. It's that way, especially Paul. So, whoa. Someone's going to come flying through the door. So, Peter does not start here with the things we're supposed to do. In verse 2, he gives us a Trinitarian description of who we are in the triune God. <coughs> Do you see all three persons of the Trinity in that statement? According to the foreknowledge of God, the? According to the sanctification of the? For obedience to Jesus. Now, the order is different than what we normally hear. What's the, what's the normal order of the Trinity? Father, Son, Spirit. So we have Father, Spirit, Son here. But that's okay. All three persons are there. So before we go any further, I, it's incumbent upon me that we talk about the Trinity. Because the Trinity is probably talked about a lot, but it's the most misunderstood and most neglected doctrine of the faith. And yet I think it's probably the most important because it defines who God is. If you get the Trinity wrong, you worship a false God. Just put it that Point blank. If you get the Trinity wrong, you're worshiping a false god. So let me just give you a definition. Um, I mean, I can give you one. I can give you tons of definitions from different people. This is Louis Burkhoff's definition. Uh, Louis Burkhoff probably, I think, has written the best systematic theology. Um, it was written in 1932, so it's a little bit older than some of the modern ones. But anyway, this is how he defines it. There is in the divine being but one indivisible essence... In this one divine being, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of three persons. Now, I'm going to erase this and draw two things on the board here. And those of you that are good at math can tell me what the first one is. Those of you that are good at sitting around doing nothing, you can tell me what the second one is. Okay? You're like, what's he going to draw? Okay. What is that? It's a triangle. Well, what kind of triangle? It's an equal. What's an equilateral triangle? All sides are equal. Okay. So if you take away one of the sides of a triangle, what happens to the triangle? It ceases to be a triangle. Okay. So. All right, so there's three things here that have, there's three sides that have to be there, and they all have to be equal. If not, it's no longer an equal out of triangle. Okay. okay, so for those of you that like math, there's your triangle drawing. For those of you that like sitting around doing nothing, here's your next drawing. What is that? It's a stool. How many legs are on the stool? What happens if I take away one of the legs? You'll be toppled over. Okay. So what I'm going to tell you guys tonight is there are three foundational truths of the Trinity that you absolutely have to have. 
If you take any of these definitions, if you take any of these elements away, you like if you took away the side of a triangle, you no longer have a triangle. If you take away the side of the, of the chair, it comes crumbling down. If you take away any of these three definitions, you no longer have the God of the Bible. You have a heresy. Okay? So what are these three truths? Here's truth number one about the Trinity. There is only one God, not a plurality of gods. Okay, do, we, do we worship one God? Do we worship three gods? We worship one God who's one, and I'm going I'm to use a word up here, okay? Some of you that have gone through the new members class, this is familiar to, to you. Okay, so God, God is one, and I'll just put the word, whatever word you prefer, He's one in being, He's one in essence, He's one in substance. These are the terms that the early church fathers and the councils and the creeds used to describe God being one in essence, one in being. Okay, He's one, there's one God, okay? So Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, the Shema. It's historically been called, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The Lord your God is, He's one God. Okay. Remember the song of Moses a few weeks ago on Sunday morning? Exodus 15, 11, what did, what did Moses say? Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? What's the answer to the rhetorical question? There's nobody like the one true God. And then Isaiah 45, 21 through 22. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me? Now, that's the easiest one for us to understand, okay? We're not... When we go on our mission trips to um, places overseas that we won't mention on Facebook Live, but those of you know where we go, they have a bunch of different gods, millions of different gods all over the place. In America, I don't think we struggle with plurality of gods. We, I think we understand we worship one God. Okay, But within that one God who's one in essence, here's the second truth you got to have. God who's one in essence, there are three distinct persons Namely, who are the three persons? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they share the same essence of Godhood. So within the one God, there is the Father, there is the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. Is the Father God? Is the Son God? Is the Holy Spirit God? Is the Father the same person as the Son? Is the Son the same person as the Holy Spirit? No, they're distinct persons. Okay? <clears throat> now, you see this in the, um, John's prologue, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So let's just ask some questions here. Okay, you got two words there. One word is Word, and one word is God. Okay? Who is the Word? What person of the Trinity is the Word? Jesus the Son. What person of the Trinity is God? The Father. Okay? In the beginning was. John employs what's called an imperfect past tense verb in the Greek language for was, 
which means continual action in the past, which we could translate, Jesus has always existed. There has never been a time when Jesus did not exist as the eternal Son. Is Jesus fully and absolutely God? Is Jesus the same person as the Father? How do you know that? Because Jesus was what? He not only was God, but He was with God. Now, what if I said this to you? Yesterday, I went to the store with myself and we had a good time. What would you think? You're a little strange. If I'm one person, can I be with myself? You, when you use the word with, what do you say? I'm with, there has to be somebody else that you're with. So if the word was with God, that denotes who? Two distinct persons. The Father and the Son are distinct persons, okay? So in other words, um, how can you be with yourself? The preposition with denotes two separate persons. I kind of said that. So we do not worship many gods. We also do not worship one God who merely assumes roles. God's not playing two roles, one role of the Father, one role of the Son. For, let me give you an example. Those of you that are, that are comic book fans or super action hero fans, okay, who's Bruce Wayne? Okay, you say, who's Bruce Wayne? He's Batman. Well, is he Batman or is he Bruce Wayne? He's one man playing two parts, right? Is Batman the same person as Bruce Wayne? Is, is Bruce Wayne the same person as Batman? That's not the Trinity. It's not like God's playing three different roles. Like he's playing, like he's got the mask for the Father, and then he comes over here and puts the mask of Jesus on, and then he comes over here and puts the mask of the Holy Spirit on. Some groups believe that God the Father was in the Old Testament, Jesus the Son was in the New Testament, and now the only God that we have is the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy called modalism. Modalism is where it's the, the heresy that God is not, there's no three distinct persons in the Godhead. Basically, the one God is playing three different roles or is assuming three different modes, but it's not actually three distinct persons. Now, let me give you an example of where we see the three persons. It's the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Okay, let's talk about this passage of Scripture. Who's physically being baptized? Okay, is the Father being baptized? Does the Father have a body? Is the Holy Spirit being baptized? Okay, who's being baptized? Jesus. Who descends on Jesus like a dove? Okay, who speaks from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son? Okay, unless Jesus is a good ventriloquist and throws his voice. Okay, so you've got the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Holy Spirit coming as a dove. Now, they all share, all three persons share the same essence and being as God, but they're distinct persons. Okay, now, here's the third truth. So truth number one, we worship one God who's one in essence. Second truth, all three persons of the Trinity are distinct, but they share the same essence of God. But the third one is... All three persons of the Trinity are what we would call co-equal and co-eternal. In other words, what we're saying is there's no hierarchy or subordination. It's not like, okay, like we think of a military, okay, God's the, the Father's the general, the Son falls in line, the Holy Spirit, and there's a chain of command. Father's higher than the Son, the Son's higher. 
Is there a hierarchy of essence in the Holy Spirit, in the Trinity? Is the Father greater than the Son? No. Is the Son greater than the Holy Spirit? They're all equal. Have they all three existed? Was there ever a time when the Son didn't exist? Was there ever a time the Holy Spirit didn't exist? Now, some cults would say Jesus was created. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, believe that Jesus was a created being. Colossians 2.9, In Him, that's Jesus, the whole, fullness of, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay? Okay. So let's just review the Trinity for a moment. One God, three persons, co-equal and co-eternal. Now, I'm going to take you to the deep end of the water here for just a moment because I want you to think about this. So let me ask you some questions. Are all three persons of the Trinity equal in essence? Do all three persons of the Trinity have different roles? Yes, they have different roles. Okay, so here's the distinction, what we're going to talk about tonight in regards to the Trinity. Theologians make a distinction between the ontological essence and the economic function. Okay, Now, you guys come on Wednesday nights because you like to learn big words. So, you've got the ontological essence... And you got the economic function. I'm giving, you the, I'm giving you the theological terms that are used by theologians, but let me explain what these words mean. Okay, Ontological, that word just means being, the being. So when we talk about the ontological essence of the Trinity, what we're saying is all three persons are equal in their being. The Father is fully God. Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. They all share the same Godhood of God, even though they're three distinct persons. Economic function means even though they're all equal in essence, they, they have some functions that are different. So let me give you an example. Who dies on the cross? Jesus. Who sends Jesus? The Father. Who sends the Holy Spirit? Father and Jesus, okay? So you've got different persons of the Trinity doing different functions in history and in time, fulfilling different roles, even though they're all equal in being. Okay, so that's the, the real difference is ontological essence, we mean that all three persons share the same being or substance as being fully God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are unified, are one in being. That's ontological essence. But economic function, on the other hand, describes the activities and roles that each three person plays regarding creation, providence, and our salvation. Okay? So even though the Father and the Son and the Spirit share equality and eternality in power, glory, and essence, and there is no hierarchy or subordination in their shared oneness as God, ontological essence, they each have a distinct role in how they accomplish our redemption economic function. So I don't want you to think just because the Father sends Jesus and Jesus willingly goes and dies on the cross that somehow the Father's higher than Jesus and Jesus is lower. Do they share the same being in essence? 
Yes. Do they have different roles? Okay. So, let me ask you a question. Which person of the Trinity is given to you as a promised seal guaranteeing your salvation until you get it? Which person is the seal that, get, that lives inside of you? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Which person is the one who actually forgives your sins by shedding His blood on the cross? Which person of the Trinity chose you before the foundation of the world? The Father. Okay. So that's what we're talking about, economic function. They each have a different role to play in your salvation, even though all three persons are equal. So what Peter does here, back to Peter now, okay? So a little theological discussion's over. Back to Peter. He's going to give us three things, or th the three persons of the Trinity, what each of them do in our salvation. And who does he start with? The Father. Peter says that we are elect exiles according to what? To the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, what is foreknowledge? Does that merely mean that God just knows what's going to happen in advance? Nobody denies that. But it means more than that. It means more than just God knows what's going to happen foreknowledge actually, and we'll talk about that here in a moment, it actually means that God chose us. God put His electing love on us. Okay, so where does the Bible teach this type of language? Ephesians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He did what? Chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Okay? Now, I've had people over the years say, I don't believe in predestination. I just don't believe in predestination. And I say, well, stop, time out. The, the word's in the Bible. So you can't say, I don't believe in predestination. The question you've got to ask is, what view of predestination do you not believe or do you believe? Because you can't read the Bible and say, I don't believe it, because we just read a verse that has the words there. So the words chose, the word predestined, the words elect are in the Bible. The question is, how do you understand what that means? Jesus says in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. Okay. So we're going to talk about foreknowledge and predestination and I don't want you to be scared off by those terms because they're in the Bible. Because you've got the word elect and you've got the word foreknowledge. Now, the Greek word used for foreknowledge is prognosis. Okay, so pro means before. Gnosis means knowledge. Before knowledge. So the question is, does God simply passively sit back and take in knowledge of what's going to happen and seize down the quarter of time and just kind of knows what's going to happen? Or does God actually make the sovereign choice to choose people to be saved? That's the question. Um, it refers to really God's plan to um, choose. Some people tend to think of foreknowledge of God just knowing in advance, seeing in advance. They see it as God having prior information and they see what will happen. Okay, so let me give you, I'm going to put two views on the board here, okay? 
You guys ready? I sh you need more room on your sheets. Okay, so I'm going to... So two views of election. There's actually three, but I don't want to deal with the third one tonight because it's just going to confuse you. But maybe we'll deal with it one day. Well, I mean, I'm at, you know what? I actually will. I'll, I'll do it tonight. I'm going to do it. Okay, you got foreknowledge conditional. You got corporate conditional. And you've got sovereign unconditional. Now, these words are not in your Bible. Sovereign, unconditional, corporate unconditional, and foreknowledge conditional. These are words that theologians for the past 2,000 years have used to help us understand these. Okay, so let me give you the three views of election. Okay, so stop. Time out. What, when does the Bible say election took place? When did it happen? Okay, so all three views tell us that election took place when? Before time. Okay? You can't argue with that because the Bible says it happened before time. So the question becomes, okay, if God chose people to be saved before time, how did He do it? What was His, what was his basis for doing it? Okay, so here's the three views. The foreknowledge conditional election says, okay, God looked down in history to 1984. And God saw Sean Cole as a seventh grader at Disciple Now Weekend in Katy, Texas. Just making, I mean, it really, that really happened. But all right, let's go back. To, let's just make up somebody else besides me. 1984, God sees Sally at youth camp. And it's the last night of youth camp, and the pastor's bringing it. He shares the gospel. They have an altar call. She goes forward, and she trusts Jesus Christ for salvation in 1984. Okay. The foreknowledge view says God saw what Sally did in 1984 using her free will, and based upon what God saw her do, He then ratified her decision by choosing her. He chose her because he saw her choose him. Now, if God looked down the corridors of time and saw Sam live his entire life and never choose Christ, then God doesn't choose Sam because he doesn't see Sam choosing him. Okay. This is called conditional election because there are some conditions that have to be met in order for God to, to, to choose. What's the conditions God, ha God has to see in order for him to choose? God has to see you choosing him. God has to see faith. God has to see repentance. God has to see you doing something. And once God sees you in the corridors of time, then He responds by choosing you. This is called the foreknowledge conditional view of election. Puts more of the human free will, the human person in the driver's seat. God responds by what He sees. Okay. The, ne the next view is called corporate election. And it's conditional as well. This is the view. I'll give you some names. I'll, I don't want to put labels up here. You want me to put labels or not? Do you want labels? Okay, I'll just give you a label. This is the Arminian view. This is more the Arminian view. Like, so if you're part of the, um, 
If you're like, the, like if you go to the Nazarene church, they're, they're, that's their view, the Arminian, Wesleyan, Nazarene type view of election. Okay, corporate election, this is kind of, there's some Arminians that believe this, but this is kind of a, what the traditional Southern Baptists believe, um, like some old-time old time Baptists. Um, so here's what this view says. In eternity past, God chose Jesus to be the elect one. So Jesus is the elect one. And God chose this conglomerate group called the church. The church. So God chose that there was going to be a church. And then in time, when you hear the gospel, and you use your free will, you either accept or reject Jesus. And once you choose Jesus, you get to get into what was already predetermined to be the church. So this is not an individual election to individuals for salvation. It's more God chose a group. So it's kind of like this. God, cho like, God chose to have a team called the Broncos. In eternity past, God chose a team called the Broncos. And he knew there was going to be a team, and he chose a team, and he set up the team. Now, are there any people on the team yet? But there's a team, right? So God chose the team, the Broncos. Are there any people on the team yet? But there's a team, right? And when did God choose the team? In eternity past. Okay. Invitation goes out. Hey, you want to join the Broncos? Anybody want to join the Broncos? When you choose to join the Broncos, what happens? You get on the team. You then become one of the elect because God chose the team. And by you choosing to get on the team, you then become one of the elect. Now, there's still some conditions, right? What are the conditions that have to happen? You've got to get on the church. You've got, you got to get on the team. You've got to choose to get in. Okay? Am I confusing you so far? Do I need to stop and ask questions? Okay. Third view. Sovereign condition, unconditional. Okay. This view says the entire human race is fallen in Adam. When Adam sinned, he plunged the entire human race into sin. Every single person is born a sinner. So question, does anybody deserve salvation? Okay. What is the state of every single person in the world when they're born? They're guilty. Okay. Out of this large mass of guilty people that do not deserve salvation, God in His sovereign purpose, according to His own purpose, chooses to save a huge number of those people. Not a small number, a number that no man can count, a huge number. Now, did God look down and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Did God look down and say, hey, the people that I chose were better than the people I didn't choose? What's the playing field? Can God, can God, were there, <clears throat> are there any conditions that have to be met in order for God to choose you? No, the only condition is you have to be guilty, okay? And that means everybody's guilty. So God chooses, according to his own purpose, a large number of people to be saved who were guilty. And if God had left them in their state of guilt, would God be unjust? Okay, so would God be unjust to not save anybody? Does God owe it to anybody? 
So there's no injustice here. What does, every, what does everybody deserve? Justice, right? So what does everybody deserve? Justice. Is God unjust by not saving all? What is, what is God, God is merciful in saving a lot. Why He chooses some and He doesn't choose others, the Bible doesn't tell us. But we know that it's nothing within the person that moved God to do it. God didn't look down the corridors in time and say, hey, these people were a whole lot better than these other people, and so that's why I'm going to choose them. God said, according to His own purpose, according to His own counsel, He made the choice because He decided to make the choice. He could have left everybody guilty, but He chooses to save a large number. The rest He just leaves. What happens if God leaves you alone? What will you do? You'll just die in your sin. Okay, so God doesn't have to work unbelief in you. God doesn't have to do anything in those He doesn't choose. He just simply passes them over and says, I'm not going to choose them. I'm going to let them stay in their state of sin. And they suffer the consequences of what happens if they stay in their sin. Okay, so this is what we would call like the Reformed or the Calvinistic view. So those are your three options. I don't know of a third, unless somebody wants to make up one, just to add to the mix. Let's stop real quick here. <clears throat> Corporate election. Corporate or... Well, corporate election, there's... This is, this is what we... The first view is what we call traditional Arminianism. Like if you go back to talk to a traditional Arminian, this is becoming... The corporate view is becoming more popular. Now, I can tell you... Okay, I don't want to bore you here tonight. This view has been around for a long time. The early church fathers believed the first view. This view has been around for a long time, the Reformed Calvinistic view. This view is the new kid on the block, the middle one. I trace it back to um, Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian in the 1940s who wrote Church Dogmatics, and it got picked up in the 50s and 60s and got popularized in the 70s, and it's just now gaining traction among Arminians today because a lot of them just don't buy this one anymore. They've kind of shifted from this one to this one. Questions, comments, clarifications on this difficult doctrine? Yes, Brent. The best scripture you would use to refute the corporate election would be what? Well, here's what, here, okay. Do we want to do this? How many more pages do I have here? Do you guys want to, are you okay if we take a little diversion? Okay, so... Turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. What the corporate election people do is they read Ephesians chapter 1 backwards. Okay? They read it backwards. So let me just ask you a question. Is there a point in time where you have to personally trust Jesus for salvation? Yes. Just because you're elect, does that mean that you're automatically going to be saved no matter what you do? Do you still have to, quote, unquote, make the choice? Yes, you still have to. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us. Who did He choose? Us. That's who? Us. In Him when? Before the foundation of the world. Does it say He chose Christ? Does He say He chose a group? I mean, He uses the word us, 
but he doesn't say he chose the group and then you choose to get into it. He says he chose us. <laughs> so there was a specific choosing of people before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. He didn't just predestine Jesus. He didn't predestine a group. He didn't predestine a plan. See, this one, I guess, this one looks at more as election is more of a plan than personal. God elects a plan. God sets up a plan. You get in the plan based upon your free will. But is there anything here about God setting up a plan? It's very personal words, right? He, pre he chose us. He predestined us. Okay, go down to verse 11. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Okay, what comes first in this passage of Scripture? Do you see anything here about us choosing Christ or us trusting in Christ yet? God chose, God predestined, Christ died, God predestined. Okay, then boom, what happens in verse 12? So that we were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, what happened at a point in time? You heard the gospel. And what happened when you heard the gospel? You believe the truth. Okay. Where does belief come in this passage of Scripture? At the very end. So do you believe in order to get into the group? Or do you believe because God chose you to believe? If you just, so what the corporate view says is, is, ah, God set up a plan, and the way you get in the plan is you have to believe, because it says right there, when you believed, then you, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So they go all the way down to the very end and say, when you choose to believe, you get into God's plan. And my argument against that, Brent, is this. Does God have a plan of salvation? Yes. Does God have the church in mind when He elects? Yes. But at the same time, does not God elect individuals to make up that church? Not just a nameless, faithless conglomerate that one day they, they kind of get into the church. But, but the thing is that makes sense to me. I mean, you know, Which one makes sense? sense? The right one. That makes sense The correct one or the one on the right? Okay. You got to make what you're saying. This one, okay. Okay, you have friends that are corporate conditional. Clearly, and they will say that that us means us corporately. So to me, and it does mean us corporately. But us corporately is also made up. I mean, you can't have a team without individuals playing on the team. Okay. So let me give you an example of what an Arminian would say. Okay. Let me give you an example of what an Arminian would say. Here's, and I've heard them say this: Salvation is like God predestined a plane to go from Denver to New York. The plane was predestined. It had a departure time. It had an ending time. It was predestined to get to Denver to New York, and God knew it was going to get there. Okay. So the plane trip was predestined. Who's on the plane was not. You can choose to get on the plane, and once you get on the plane, you're part of the predestined plan to get there. And because you have free will, you can jump off the plane if you don't like what's going on and choose to get off the plane and not make it to the destination. So you personally are not the one that's predestined. The plan is predestined to happen. You get in or out based upon how you choose to get in and out of it. That's what their argument is. Yeah. So the way I'm seeing it, 
Yeah. That's a very easy way to. I'm I'm just saying these are the three views. You guys can choose which one you want to believe, and I'll hold you to it. So, I don't care which one you believe as long as you're able to um, articulate it and tell me why you believe it. The one thing I don't want you to say is, I don't want you to say I don't believe in predestination. I want you to say, here's which view of predestination I believe, and here's why. And here's my biblical reasons for why. And I can agree to disagree. But for you to flat out say, I don't believe it, because I've, I've had people come to me and they're like, I don't believe in predestination. I said, well, why not? Can you tell me what you don't believe about it? Well, I just don't believe it. Okay, can you tell me biblically why? Well, I just don't believe it. That's not a good answer. An answer would be, I don't believe this view because of X, Y, and Z. I believe this view because of X, Y, and Z. So maybe this is the first time you've heard of these three views and you don't have an opinion, and that's okay. What, what we're saying in Peter here is that Peter uses the word, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now let me just ask another question. And this is going to take us into the deep end of the water again. Goodness sakes, I didn't think we were going to go down this path tonight, but it's always... If... This is not in your notes, but think, think deeply with me tonight. If God... All right, let me ask you some questions. Does God have exhaustive, absolute foreknowledge of all things? Is God omniscient of all things? Does God make any mistakes in what He's going to see? Okay, so you're all saying yes. So let me ask you the hard question. If that's true, can anything happen otherwise than what God sees? Understand what I'm asking? Can you do otherwise than what God sees is going to happen? And if you say yes, then what are you saying? God's knowledge of what you... So, all right, so if God looked down the corridors of time and you could say yes or no to Jesus and God doesn't know and God sees you saying yes, can you say no? And if God sees you saying no, can you say yes? Because what does God see? Does He see possibilities? Or does He see what actually is going to happen? And by the way, is God already there? Does God make mistakes in what He sees? Some of your heads are kind of reeling here, okay? <laughs> So what I'm saying is, if God has absolute foreknowledge of all things, and He sees, and He knows, and He ordains, because here's what's going to happen. What's, what's, the, what's the objection to this view? What's the objection to this view? That's not fair. Or the objection to this view? That's not fair. Okay. So let me ask you a question. Do any of these views get God off the hook? Because let me, let me just, let's just ask a question. In these two views, does it get God off the hook? Because what did God do? God created a universe where He saw you not choose Him, and He had you be created anyway, knowing all along you wouldn't choose Him, and He did nothing to intervene to make you choose Him. He left it up to your free will. 
So even then, God still set it up for you to be born knowing that at the end of the day, you would never choose Him. And He allowed it to happen and didn't intervene to stop it from happening. What was that, Risa? What's your definition? Of, we got to define free will. And I can define... I, goodness sakes. Um, <laughs> we need to be careful when we use terms because we may have different definitions. When we talk about free will, a lot of people think libertarian free will, that I have the option to choose yes or no, and I, between two competing options, I, can, I have ultimate autonomous ability to choose Christ whenever I want to. Versus the Bible would say, you make choices, but you make choices based upon your nature. And as a fallen person that has a sin nature, you're never going to choose unless God does something to overcome that and give you the ability to choose. You guys ready to move on? <laughs> Let's move on. Okay. I'm going to skip over all of those passages of Scripture. Um, actually, let me just give you the Spurgeon quote. I'm not sure what sheet it's on. What page is on in your sheet? But that was a bunch of talking and we didn't even stick with the script. But there's a Spurgeon quote. Yes. Yeah, I'm not sure what page. It's on page 9 on mine, but I'm sure it's different. Page 3. Okay. Spurgeon said this. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I could never find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. I don't know why God does it, but he does it because he wants to do it. And so we can struggle with it. We can argue with it. You can say, I don't like it. Or you can say, the word shows up in the Bible. I got to figure out which view I'm going to hold to. So, election according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit. Sanctification in the Holy Spirit. Sanctification in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does the word sanctification mean? Does anybody else have a different word besides sanctification, like holiness, being made holy? It's, it's all the same like Greek family of words. Set apart, to be separated, to be holy, to be distinctly different. So here, here's, here's, a, here's something we need to understand. Regardless of what view of election you hold to, God has chosen you not to live however you want just because you're chosen and you're going to get to go to heaven anyway. He's chosen us to be holy and blameless and to live distinctly different lives. So regardless of what view of election you hold to, it's not an excuse for you to live however you want because God chose me and I'm going to go to heaven and it doesn't matter. So let's look at some scriptures. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Okay, God chose you to be saved. How? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Acts 15, 7 through 9. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, okay, so Peter's speaking about the Gentiles coming to faith. Peter's speaking in Acts. Peter's writing. First Peter, let's see what the language he uses. It's similar. 
Peter stood up in the debate, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So when you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit does this internal cleansing, this separation, this making you holy. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that God would do this. Ezekiel 36, 25-27, I will sprinkle water, clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So, God the Father elected us in eternity past to be saved. In time, at the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit set us apart, sanctified us, regenerated us, made us new creatures in Christ. Here's the important thing. Once the Holy Spirit comes upon you and causes you to be saved, you are holy. You are set apart. Now, this does not mean that you're perfect or that you can somehow become sinless because you still have indwelling sin, but it means that the Holy Spirit indwells you and will continue the work of sanctification throughout your Christian life. So to be sanctified by the Spirit means the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, He's cleansed you, He's made you new, and He gives you the strength to live the Christian life of holiness, pursuing the Lord the way that you're called to do that through His indwelling presence in your life. And we've looked at that Ephesians passage over and over again tonight. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So the Father elected us. The Holy Spirit sanctified us. Now, what's the third person of the Trinity that's in this passage of Scripture? Jesus, the Son. For obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. There's significance in that little word, for. Why were we elected? Why were we sanctified? What's the purpose? For. For the purpose of obedience to Jesus, we have been elected in order to live a life of obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Paul captures this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It's his way of saying the same thing Peter's saying. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Saved by grace, right? Not works, not anything we do. But why are we saved? For, verse 10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so let me just ask you a very simple question. How do you know you're elect? And how do you know that you've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit? 
you obey Jesus. Now, not perfectly. I'm not saying that you're walking in sinless perfection. But here's the point. True evidence that you've been elected by the Father, true evidence that you've been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit is that you now, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, you live a life of obedience to Jesus. Okay. If God's foreknowledge is the initiative of our election and the Spirit's sanctification is our experience of our election, and obedience to Jesus the Son is the purpose of our election, then what's the security or guarantee of our election? How do we know we'll inherit heaven? How do you know you'll persevere to the end? How do you know that God, God says, okay, I elected you, and the Holy Spirit sanctified you, and, and you're supposed to obey Jesus. How do you know you're going to make it to the end and do all that? Yep. What is, what's the second little phrase there? For the sprinkling with his blood. That's a weird expression. Sprinkled? Sprinkle of fairy dust? Like sprinkle. Sprinkle with blood? That's an interesting phrase. Takes us back to Exodus. Exodus 24, 6 through 8. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay. Now, we haven't gotten there in Exodus yet on Sunday mornings, but let me explain what's going on. This is after the Ten Commandments. And God is entering into a solemn covenant with the people, a covenant in blood. And Moses takes the blood, and he's going to throw it on the people. But what do the people say? All the Ten Commandments we will do. And Moses says, are you sure about that? We're going to do it to our heart's content. We're going to be faithful to obey the Ten Commandments. Are you sure about that, Israelites? Because I'm going to ratify this in blood. What does Moses do? This is so solemn that you're swearing to do it. I'm going to throw blood on you. I'm going to sprinkle blood on you so that you will obey. Now, what happened to the people? All this we will do. That's chapter 24. You guys know when the golden calf happens? (laughs) Chapter 32. Just a few chapters later. Peter takes this Old Testament imagery and brings it into light into the crucifixion of Christ. On the cross, when Jesus, the true Passover lamb, the true sacrifice, shed his blood, he instituted the new covenant was based upon grace alone and faith alone. What was the pattern in the Old Testament? All this we will do, and they failed. Jesus said, all that you couldn't do, I'm going to do, and I'm going to fulfill and I'm going to die, and I'm going to sprinkle you with my blood, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to give you the power so that you can obey, and you can live it out through the gospel. And this sprinkling of the blood is a metaphor for the fact that we are, we've been purchased by Jesus. He owns us. We're His. We're secure. His blood cleanses us. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So let's just kind of wrap this up with some, some questions. Okay, what's the implication of this? Regardless of what view of election you hold to, if God chose you, the Father, and the Holy Spirit has sanctified you and is living inside you, and Jesus has bought you and purchased you with His blood, what should this produce in your life? What should it lead you to? Well, what does Peter say there? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You experience grace and peace in abundance. So the doctrine of election leads us to live lives of joyful humility. Let me just say this. You and I should never, ever, ever have the attitude that somehow we deserve salvation or that God owed it to us or that somehow we're better than non-Christians because we got picked and they didn't or whatever. I, I often pray this in my prayers. Okay, I'll be real honest with you. There are times in my personal prayer life, and you don't have to pray this way. This is the way I pray. Where I will thank God. I say, God, I praise you this day because in eternity past, for whatever reasons you saw fit, you chose to save me. And you could have very well left me in my sin as a reprobate and have done me no harm or, or done me no wrong. You did not deserve to save me. I mean, I did, you did not, I did not deserve for you to save me. I couldn't earn it. You were under no obligation. All I can do is just humbly thank you because I know my life now. And if I was God, I don't know if I would. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't save me. It should also lead us to live lives in awe and majesty of the glory of God. He alone deserves all the praise. Did, did we, regardless of what view you choose, did, did you choose? Did, did you sanctify yourself? Did you die for yourself? Did you sprinkle the blood on yourself? No. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, did this work in your life. And think about it this way. If God's done all this stuff for you in eternity past, what He began, He's going to carry it on to completion. He's going to see it through. God's not going to start something and not finish it. How many times do we start projects and not finish it? <laughs> God's not going to start something and not finish it. So humility, joy, awe, confidence, the doctrine of election should lead us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to Him because we understand why we were chosen. We were chosen to be holy and blameless, to walk in purity. So, like I said, before Peter begins to unfold to us how we are to live as strangers in a strange land, how we're to practically live it out, he wants us to pause at the very beginning, think about our, our election, our sanctification, <coughs> our, our salvation in the wonderful triune God of our salvation, the Trinity. So he wants us to think about the electing love of the Father, the sacrificial grace of the Son, and the sanctifying power of the Spirit. And there's a passage of Scripture at the end of 2 Corinthians that also has all three persons of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So before you start doing for Jesus, doing things for God, Peter wants you to stop and say, 
What has God done for me? Who am I in God? And that gives me the motivation and the encouragement and the confidence and the power to then live it out. We get those switched around and start with what we're supposed to do before we know who we are. We're either going to be prideful or we're going to be deflated or we're going to despair or we're going to do it with just in our own flesh. So I milked the first two verses for all it's worth tonight. I don't think I can give you much more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> any questions? In the last six, seven minutes we have tonight, do you guys have any questions? No questions at all after all that deep theological crazy. Yes, Brent. The difference between this and between Christianity and any other belief system in the world is that do and done. Yeah, do and done. Everything that every other belief system I've ever heard of is what can you do yeah. to get to God yeah. versus what can you do. Yeah, that, that's the best way to explain Christianity to somebody. Just real simple. Every other religion is what must I do. You fill in the blank with whatever world system it is. What must I do to get to God, to live a better life, to achieve whatever? Christianity says it's not what you can do. It's what God has done for you in Christ. You just trust in what He's done for you. It's a finished work. It's a completed work. It's a powerful work. Trust in Jesus who did all the work for you because you could never do enough. I think people know deep in their hearts they can never do enough. Rico, you have a question? How could you, I mean, how, who could ever think that they could? Yeah. People fool themselves all the time trying to be religious, thinking they can do. The other thing is, you know, these people I work with, is that what really is a mind blow to me is when you, in theory, say that Hitler, under this, could be in heaven, and Mother Teresa could be in hell based purely on this. I don't believe that's what happened. You know, I can go with that. But when you say that Hitler in the bunker, if truly he did, mm -hmm. um, then we have to say he's in heaven. I mean, that's a, abhorrent to most of us. But if we truly look and say, not by anything of us, purely of God, I realize that well, that's Well, yeah, let me, let me say it a different way. Let, let, me, let me put it a different way. In every single one of us, there's a potential to be Hitler, mm -hmm. if not for the grace of God restraining that. <coughs> if we went to seed on the full sin in our hearts, who knows where we'd end up? So God is gracious in saving us and giving us a new heart. Now, when we talk about depravity, there's degrees of depravity. Not everybody's a Hitler, but not every, you know, so there's degrees of that. But the point is, even the good works that you do, are like filthy rags in Christ's sight, that nobody's good before the cross. All of us deserve death. Jesus saves us, not by anything we do, but simply by His grace alone. And that's the cause for praise. Yes? That's what Jesus was saying. So um, even on His deathbed, if Hitler professed belief in Jesus... Well, okay, let's, let's just talk about deathbed confessions, okay? Here's a couple things. We have one example in the Bible, the thief on the cross. And he, we don't know all that he did. We just know he was being crucified for being a criminal. Okay, so all we know from the Bible is what the Bible says. If, a, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Some people do that at age 5. Some people do that at age 85 right before they die. 
Now, there's great blessings of living an entire life as a saved person versus living an entire life as a decrepit, depraved person and getting saved at your deathbed. But if you believe in grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and it's by faith in Jesus, if they're truly, if they're truly saved, they will go to heaven regardless of the life that they lived. Now, we can't consume that because what do we think? It's got to be based upon merit. We've got to stack our life up against other people and earn it. We don't know the heart of that person. Only God knows the heart. But the Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that person genuinely repents and believes, there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be saved if, because that's the way you got saved. You just got saved earlier in life by God's grace. They got saved later in life. And you didn't, yeah, and you, and you didn't have to live with the... And I don't believe Hitler was saved, so I'm not even... Let's not go down that, let's not go down that, that path. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. Anything else? We've got two minutes. All right. We'll go a little faster next week. We won't just spend on two verses. Okay. All right, let's pray. Father, um, first of all, Father, I just want to thank you for your grace and mercy in um, sovereignly initiating our salvation. That there was nothing in us that moved you or caused you to look upon us with love. It was just um, your, your sheer mercy because, Lord, we know what we deserve. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Holy Spirit, thank you for living in us, dwelling in us, giving us the power to live the Christian life. Holy Spirit, giving us the fruit of the Spirit, uh, giving us just your presence in our lives. And Jesus, thank you for sprinkling us with your blood, dying on the cross, shedding your blood for us so that we can live a life of obedience. And so, Lord, as we think about First Peter and, and living our lives for your glory this week, um, help us to remember that um, these truths are meant to, for us to rest in who we are in Christ and just to, to walk in humility, to walk in joy, to walk in thankfulness of what you've done for us. So thank you, Jesus, from first to last, that our salvation's in your hands. And we ask this in your name. Amen.